from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, October 5th. Today, what we still don't know about Trump's battle with COVID, the quiet descent of postal workers, and the Nobel Prize in medicine. On Monday afternoon, President Trump announced that he is expected to leave Walter Reed Medical Center later this evening, even though it remains unclear exactly how sick he is from COVID. At the very least, we know there's been a stream of complicated, contradictory, confusing information coming out of the White House this week. We do know on the record that there are points since his diagnosis that his oxygen levels did drop enough that the president was administered supplemental oxygen, which is a very important point. His doctors say his oxygen levels are now up to normal in the upper 90s. He did have a fever at some point, and he's been taking a rounds of remdesivir, one of the drugs that have been used to treat the coronavirus. And one of the biggest surprises of the weekend, in a weekend full of many surprises, was this impromptu visit that the president made to see his supporters who had gathered outside Walter Reed. We were kind of thinking, what is going on? God bless our president. I will die for him. I will die for that man happily. If you are a COVID patient, you are supposed to remain isolated, seen only by your doctors who themselves are just, you know, decked out in this PPE. But the windows were up. You could see the various agents and a security detail in the car with him. My name is Sung Bin Kim, and I am a White House reporter for The Washington Post. As you say, this seems to be somewhat contradictory information because on the one hand, supposedly he's fine and he is having a quick recovery. But at the same time, he's being given treatments that are usually being given to people with much more serious cases of COVID. And the fact that there were reports that his oxygen was down pretty significantly, at least at at some point since he was diagnosed with COVID. Yeah, there's not a consistent message. And this contradiction started earlier on this weekend, even on Friday, when senior White House officials were indicating to us that he was experiencing mild symptoms. But later we find out through anonymous sources and then the president's doctor, Sean Conley, later confirmed on the record to us that as of Friday morning, when he was still at the White House, so before he leaves for Walter Reed, his oxygen levels had dropped. And that's when he was administered supplemental oxygen. Um, that seems pretty severe. That does not. That seems to be more than mild symptoms to the average person. So the White House has not been giving us clear and accurate information here. And you saw this kind of evasiveness on the specifics continue yesterday. One moment that really struck me was when Dr. Conley was asked by reporters at Walter Reed whether his oxygen blood level, the president's oxygen blood level, ever dipped below 90%. And Dr. Conley responds, uh, No, it was below 94%. It, was, it wasn't down in the low 80s or anything. No. That was not the question. 
And that's an example of how we haven't been getting straight answers from this White House and press conferences. A lot of updates have been coming through these very uh, brief, terse memos uh, written by uh, Dr. Conley himself. And it's just a lot of confusion about the health of the most powerful person on earth. And I think it brings up these questions of what are the responsibilities of these doctors to tell the truth about the president's health? I mean, this doctor, Dr. Conley, is he a Walter Reed doctor? Does he work for the president? Like, can we be certain that this doctor's chief intention is to be transparent with the American public about the health of the president versus is he really just serving as a doctor for Trump and his responsibility to be honest about what's going on is secondary. He is not a Walter Reed doctor. He is actually the president's personal doctor within the White House. So first and foremost, I mean, yes, his patient is his patient, the president of the United States. And he, as well as, you know, White House senior White House officials, when they were pressed on Sunday, why they weren't forthcoming with exact and precise details about the severity of the president's condition, they said, putting on kind of a happy veneer of being positive about things is a, is a way to treat patients because you do want to get patients in a good mood. Hmm. There's some element of truth to that, but this is no ordinary patient. This is the president of the United States. His health has significant implications for, you know, basically anything I can think of, significant global implications, significant national security implications, significant domestic implications. The fact that he ran a fever, we still don't know how high his fever ever was. We have asked that repeatedly. So all these details really do matter to the public. And again, he is not an ordinary patient. He is the president of the United States. And what about the people around the president? Because in in the days before Trump was diagnosed with COVID, he made appearances at several public gatherings. There was the debate. There was a big fundraiser. Have all the people around him been accounted for in terms of contact tracing, making sure that they are quarantining? And what do we know about how many people around the president also have tested positive for the coronavirus? There's actually a pretty significant number of the people in the president's inner circle and at events he attended who have been diagnosed with COVID-19, especially after the announcement that the president himself and the first lady was diagnosed. So obviously, we kind of first heard about this after the news that his closest aide, Hope Hicks, had tested positive for covid After the news of Hope's diagnosis that we heard, then the president and himself and the first lady had it, we began to trace the president's movements, the president's actions in the several days before the announcement. And... There are people around him who did debate prep. So former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie, Bill Stepien, uh, the Trump campaign manager, they have both since announced that they have tested positive. We have several people at this uh, Rose Garden ceremony at the White House on that previous Saturday who have announced that they are positive, such as his former counselor, Kellyanne Conway. Chris Christie was also at that event two United States senators who are on the Judiciary Committee. So they were there to celebrate Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. So that's Senator Tom Tillis of North Carolina, Senator Mike Lee of Utah. And there was the University of Notre Dame president who was also diagnosed. um, And he also attended that event. You know, Notre Dame being a key player here because that is where Judge Barrett teaches. So that's kind of what we're trying to piece together in terms of where these potential hotspots may be for the virus. 
the White House has indicated that their medical unit is doing contact tracing, but we don't know how aggressive this contact tracing is and to what extent. I thought it was really remarkable that a New York Times reporter who covers the White House, uh, Michael Shear, he is one of the three journalists known to have contracted COVID-19 in the last several days. He traveled on Air Force One with the president to Pennsylvania last Saturday. So it was the same day as that Rose Garden ceremony. And he says he has not been contacted at all by the medical unit for contact reason purposes. If people who are proactively putting themselves out there and says, I have COVID, I was at the White House, you know, come talk to me. If they haven't heard, it does raise questions about how extensive this contact tracing effort has been. What does that mean about the chances that the Supreme Court nomination of Amy Coney Barrett is going to go forward as the Republican Party has planned right now? October 12th is still the start of the confirmation hearings and Democrats acknowledge there's nothing they can do to actually force a delay in those hearings. Uh, Mitch McConnell, because of the COVID outbreak among senators and the isolation of several others who were exposed to those uh, COVID positive colleagues, has said the Senate is not going to be in session. Senators will return to Washington on October 19th for a series of votes. The Senate does not need to be in session for hearings to be held, so that does not affect the October 12th hearings. But, I mean, the Republicans' hope is actually just to make sure none of their members get sick and the ones who are sick get better soon, which is a clearly worrisome prospect for for Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham, and all the Republicans who do want to get Amy Coney Barrett confirmed before Election Day. Sung Min Kim is a White House reporter for The Post. On Monday morning, White House Press Secretary Kaylee McEnany announced that she has also tested positive for the coronavirus. The Postal Service's challenges are across the board. We're looking at issues of of financing, of their role in our political system, Uh, but we're also just looking at the everyday delivery of the mail and the 630,000 person workforce, the vast majority of which is unionized, and the role that, that they play in society, in the logistics and express shipping industries, but also their commitment to us as government workers and civil servants. I'm Jacob Bogage. I write about the U.S. Postal Service for The Washington Post. Through the spring, the Postal Service's big crisis was a financial crisis, specifically a cash crisis. Folks are sending a lot less first-class mail and and marketing mail. So that's letters and bills and the greeting card your grandmother sends you and coupons that go through the mail to like the local tire shop or Bed Bath & Beyond or something, which means the Postal Service is having some issues because they don't get taxpayer money. They're entirely funded through the sale of postage products. And how has the Postal Service been responding to those issues? 
the Postal Service, to respond to those issues, has gone to Congress and asked for help. They've asked for varying amounts of money to the tune of $80 billion down to, you know, $25 billion. They, they want cash to pay their bills because that, to them, is the biggest crisis. Now, as we've gone through the summer, the crisis has become less a financial one. They've gotten a loan from the Treasury Department for $10 billion as it is one of confidence, is the new leader of the Postal Service, who is a great ally to the president, willing to stand up to the president when it comes to postal operations and specifically helping facilitate the November election. And that new leader, Louis DeJoy, he seems to be very controversial and to have put in place a lot of steps in the Postal Service that it's not clear are actually making the Postal Service run better. Yeah, there's one big step that Louis DeJoy put into place, and that's a stricter transportation schedule. He basically said no more late trips, no more extra trips to deliver the mail. That's really important because, you remember, the Postal Service serves all of us, serves 300 million Americans. It's really hard, even on the best of days, to have consistency of timing of when all this mail comes in and when all this mail gets processed. So to have on-time service, you do need late trips. You do need extra trips. You can't just send one mailman out first thing in the morning and hope it works out. So as there have been these competing pressures on the Postal Service, what do we know about what has been happening on the inside? Even before Louis DeJoy joins the Postal Service, takes office on June 15th. Through the spring, the agency is just in perpetual crisis. It's dealing with the financial difficulties of the pandemic. It's dealing with its workforce getting sick or or getting scared to come in to work. It is so swamped by all of these crises. We know a lot about this inner turmoil at the Postal Service because of this trove of almost 10,000 pages of documents me and my colleagues received through a Freedom of Information Act request and the government watchdog group American Oversight going through these documents, which generally extend from the end of March to the beginning of May and cover the entire month of April in between, paint a picture of an agency that struggled to identify what role it was going to play for the nation, not only through the pandemic and the election, but in the years succeeding, what a 21st century postal service really looks like. So one thing that you've been reporting on is not only how we as regular people, people who receive mail, are concerned about the quality of the mail service that we're getting, whether it can handle ballots, whether it can handle cards from our grandmas, but also that the postal workers themselves are really concerned about what's happening and how these changes are affecting their ability to do good service. They are. They're freaking out. I have a group of postal workers uh, that's growing. And if you're a postal worker and want to talk to me, please do, that I correspond with or, or talk to every day. And I hear from them, you know, one of the first things they learn when you join the Postal Service and orientation is this motto, EPED, every piece, every day. I treat your mail like I treat my mail, like I like there are precious items inside. They feel like what the Postmaster General has done violates the moral code, the, an ethical code that they subscribe to as postal workers. What do you mean by that? These people commit to 
an expeditious and careful transmission of everybody's mail. They see themselves as, as folks who are on the front lines of ensuring open lines of communication in our democracy. And not only that, but, you know, that you get your prescription drugs, you know, that you're able to correspond with your loved ones or that your mortgage payment arrives on time. You don't get late fees. I mean, every piece of mail that goes through their hands, they tell me they are committed to moving in a careful and expeditious way. They even take an oath of office. So the idea that they feel like the guy in charge is preventing them from doing that job is really hurtful. So for these postal workers that you've talked to who are seeing that there are now commands from the top to basically do things that will result in mail arriving to people more slowly, not taking extra trips, not having overtime, how are they responding to that? Is it just like, look, it's out of my hands, and if that's the policy, and then that's what I have to do? No, I think there's active pushback. I mean, I talked to clerks who, when transport trucks get in with mail every day and they have to go through and sort it, they make a note of all of the benefits checks and all of the prescriptions they see coming in in these mail hampers. And they pull them out and sort them first. And they'll, if they have to leave the other mail behind, they will because they know these are essential items. That they're basically creating their own tactics to try to still get the mail to the people who need it the most. Exactly. I mean, they, I, I talked to postal workers in Michigan who, you know, we talk about election mail. You know, Michigan had a midsummer primary and they had ballots to go deliver. And they were told, no, these ballots can wait till tomorrow. You need to get out on the road right now. Leave them behind so you can start your route on time. And these letter carriers got together and said, absolutely not. We will start late and you can write us up. We don't care. We are taking these ballots out. You know, letter carriers get generally eight hours to complete their route. But all kinds of stuff happens. It, it, it can take longer than eight hours. And so sometimes they need an, some extra justification for why they need to stay out longer. So they make up excuses. Oh, there was a train that ran through an intersection and I got stuck behind it and I had to wait for five minutes. Oh, there was heavy traffic. Oh, I made a wrong turn. Just to buy themselves 10, 15, 20 more minutes so they can complete their route and not leave mail behind. And so in these cases where you have postal workers who are in some cases like coming up with fake excuses just to be able to buy themselves time to deliver the mail, what is at risk for them? Like, are they punished for doing some of this stuff? A whole lot is at risk for them. Um, first of all, they could lose their jobs. Uh, they could lose their jobs simply from talking to me. I mean, the, the Postal Service put out an internal memo to all workers saying, first of all, don't talk to the media and then be wary of customers who ask, and this is a quote, a series of questions. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> basically, if a customer comes in to a retail window and starts asking you about the troubles at the Postal Service, don't tell them anything. Is basically what this memo said, because they could be reporters, and God forbid you should talk to them. But there are serious punishments for folks who are deemed to have delayed uh, or interfered with mail processes. You can go to jail for five years. It's a federal crime. If you're buying yourself 20 more minutes to finish your round, you're not going to get jailed for that. But if you're doing something that, that supervisors feel or the Postal Service in general feels violates the expediency of delivery, that's a jailable offense. And you can get 
prosecuted for that. You can get fined for that, and you'll probably lose your job. There's a lot at stake for postal workers, and it, it's telling because of the consequences that they feel so strongly they're willing to take them on. Wow. That's pretty remarkable. And honestly, when I think about the agencies and the government where you would see a like hashtag resistance against the administration, I feel like the Postal Service would not have been high on my list of places where you would see this happen. No, absolutely not. I mean, it, when we think about the hashtag resistance, we think about it, you know, agencies that that deal more directly with a political agenda, whether that's taxes or immigration or defense or something like that. The Postal Service, you know, these are folks who literally just deliver us all our mail. The fact that they feel there could be a political agenda in the way they do that, the fact that they feel like the motives of the leaders are not as pure as they want them to be is very telling. That's why we're seeing this kind of quiet internal uprising. Jacob Bogage writes about the U.S. Postal Service for The Post. And now, one more thing. So good morning, uh, um, very welcome to Nobel Forum for the announcement of this year's Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. The Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded on Monday morning. It was given to researchers from the US and the UK for their discovery of the hepatitis C virus. The Nobel Assembly at Karolinski Institute has today decided to award the 2020 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine jointly to Harvey J. Alter, Michael Horton, and Charles M. Rice for the discovery of hepatitis C virus. If you go back to the 1960s and 70s, people were getting blood transfusions and then showing back up at the hospital with severe liver disease. And scientists did not know what was causing these diseases. They didn't know what was the particular germ, the particular pathogen that actually caused the illness. And so what Harvey Alter and Michael Houghton and Charles Rice did is they did each step of the work to isolate this virus, to characterize it, to understand its genetics, and then put the rest of the research world on a path to finding a cure. I'm Sarah Kaplan, and I'm a reporter at The Washington Post. What's kind of amazing about this research is that it really took decades from first realizing that there was a problem, that this disease was being transmitted through blood transfusions, to kind of isolating the problem, to then identifying the virus. Really, the, the really effective treatments for hepatitis C have only come about in the past decade or so. And that's a story of slow science, how years of research and discovery build on themselves to eventually get to a point where this disease that was a scourge for so long that affected millions of people is actually quite controllable now. And it, it is a really interesting contrast to the situation that we're in today with SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19, because you think about that disease first emerged at the end of last year, and 
in a matter of weeks, scientists had sequenced the entire genome of the virus. They'd understood where the virus fits into the family tree, what other viruses it was related to. You know, right now we have this whole range of antiviral treatments and vaccines and other possible therapies that are being tested. And it hasn't even been 12 months since this disease first emerged. And compare that to the decades and decades of research that went into being able to treat hepatitis C. Obviously, the pandemic, the scale of the pandemic that we're in right now, merits that kind of really fast research, right? Like people are dying, um, millions of lives have been disrupted and the whole world has come together because the need is so pressing and so urgent. But the other thing that, you know, is important to remember, especially in the context of the Nobels, is that just as important is that basic science that is not necessarily directed. It's not necessarily, I am setting out to discover the cure for a disease. It's really a testament to the need for slow science as well as the kind of rapid pace science that we're seeing with the coronavirus today. Sarah Kaplan is a science reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Last week, we introduced you to a new podcast from The Washington Post, Canary. It's a seven-part series about truth and justice. And once you start listening, you won't be able to stop. All seven episodes of Canary, The Washington Post Investigates, are available now. We'll put a link in our show notes, or you can search Canary in your podcast app. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.